We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This is Metroscope, an Intercom Radio Portland public affairs program. I'm Gary Bloxham. Opioids are definitely in the news a lot right now. And on Metroscope this time, we're going to be talking to a pain specialist to find out exactly what's going on. On Metroscope today, I would like to welcome Dr. Rusty Kinder. Dr. Kinder is a fellowship-trained interventional pain specialist at Adventist Health. Hey there, Dr. Kinder. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having Great. me. Well, let's find out first what you do. What is a, what is a fellowship-trained interventional pain therapist? Specialist. Um, my job is to see patients who have uh, been living with chronic pain and try to develop strategies to help them live better lives, um, happier with less pain. What kind of chronic pain are we talking about? Like anything? Really? Any, any kind of chronic pain from any number of uh, diseases, from neurological disorders, from um, autoimmune disorders, um, disc protrusions in their back, um, any number of conditions. How many people suffer from chronic pain? That sounds awful. Um, it's much more common than you might think. It's the number one uh, reason for a patient to visit a, a physician is for chronic pain. And how, how is pain treated? It's, uh, it's, that's a very complicated and uh, <laughs> big question. So you can't answer it in one word? <laughs> I can't, yeah. One, maybe one sentence. All right. Um, so chronic pain is treated in lots of uh, different ways. So first you have to identify, if you can, the underlying source of the pain. And if you can, treat that that source. Um, if you're treating the symptoms, there's a number of different modalities um, that, I th- that we'll probably get into more depth a little bit later. Um, but th- those include medications, um, psychological support, um, physical therapy, um, and some more in-depth um, things that I do like um, in- injections and-, and surgery. Wow. One of the things that, uh, that we hear a lot about that's in the news are opioids, right? right. And opioids are used to treat pain. Is that correct? Well, let's talk about what what are opioids. What are opioids? So, opioids are um, an interesting uh, a drug. They're they're a class of drugs that stimulate uh, receptors that we have in our bodies naturally in our our central nervous system, like our brain and our spine, but also in the nerves around the rest of our body. Um, they have specific effects where they help decrease the pain that those uh, nerves, the pain signals that those nerves send to the brain. Um, they're also used in medicine in some different aspects. For instance, it's used in um, cough syrups as a cough suppressant. It's also used uh, to treat some um, diseases like uh, or some symptoms like diarrhea. So it's it's got a whole a whole host of different um, ways that we uh, use it to treat things in um, in medicine in general. Um, are opioids mostly in a in pill form? Well, you say it's in right. cough medicine, but I think most people are familiar with a, a pill form, right? Sure. And so when you talk about opioids, there's the, there's the medication ones that, that you get from a physician, but opioids are also used um, illicitly on the street. And so, for instance, heroin happens to be um, an opioid. And so they're, they're, they're used um, as a drug to get high, but they're also used in medicine to help, um, to help with things like the chronic pain and the cough. So they come in many different forms. Um, as an anesthesiologist... I, I would use that in um, surgery to help um, patients even when they're asleep. For instance, when patients are asleep under anesthesia, opioids have a very specific effect on the body. 
They help control uh, vital signs like heart rate and blood pressure, and they can help prevent uh, pain from becoming chronic by um, staying ahead of it uh, before the patient even wakes up from anesthesia. How do opioids work? So opioids work by stimulating those uh, opioid receptors um, in the body, and uh, they they live on the nervous on the ends of the nerves, and they help decrease the pain signals that those sensory nerves send to the brain. And do they have? Is there is there uh, other side effects or other? I guess people get addicted to them, so there must be something else besides pain relief that people are taking them for. Are there any psycho psychological effects? Yeah, well, there there are. Um, one of the side effects is euphoria. Um, which can be, um, some people take advantage of that. Um, but uh, there's also a number of uh, other side effects on the body. We mentioned that, there's, that it affects the GI tract. There's, there's actually receptors in the GI tract, and it can cause things like constipation, um, nausea, uh, vomiting. Um, there, it can um, have a whole host of uh, effects on your hormones of your body. For instance, uh, men that take Opioids can have decreased testosterone levels and might have to have that replaced. Wow. Why do opioids have such a bad reputation? So um, I think we already mentioned um, heroin earlier. I think if, uh, if heroin is one of your family members, I think your whole family tends to have a bad reputation. Um, that's, that's part of the issue. Um, I think uh, part of the issue is also the the media coverage of these medications is pretty universally negative, um, talking about the ba- the bad things that happen with these medications. Um, but um, there's some of the bad reputation of opioids is is pretty well deserved. For instance, we know that in 2017, last year, the National Institutes of Health stated that there was over 49,000 uh, deaths associated with opioid overdoses. Wow. By far the the most ever, and that number has been increasing every year since 2002. And the last few years have actually been the highest increases in overdose deaths from opioids, mostly due to the, these newer synthetic opioids that are being used illicitly, like fentanyl and carfentanil. And carfentanil has uh, been in the news a lot lately. That medication is more than a hundred times more potent than its than its parent drug, fentanyl. Wow. Wasn't that something that uh, there was an overdose in a, in a large park somewhere in the United States just recently because of that synthetic opioid? Um, I'm not sure if that's the same case. There was a very recent uh, uh, string of overdose deaths from synthetic, what they call synthetic marijuana. I think that's okay, a, a right. bad term, a K2, um, uh, that was laced with other um, ingredients. And I, I believe opioids might have been a part of that. Because op- opioids are in the media so much, it, it almost get the sense that anybody who takes an, an opioid for pain medication is automatically addicted. That's not the right. case. Yeah, that, you're exactly right. That's not the case. It, it is true that um, it seems like you would, you'd think that anybody, it seems like the inevitable end, end point for taking opioids is addiction. Um, if, you, if you kind of watch, watch the media coverage right. of medications, and it, it's not true. The vast majority of patients who take opioids do not become addicted. And in fact, it's a fairly sm- I shouldn't say small amount, but it's a smaller percentage, less than 10% or so of uh, patients ex- exposed to opioids end up uh, developing some kind of use disorder or addiction. Why do some people get addicted? That's something that we're really trying to figure out. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, different factors that play into someone's risk of um, becoming addicted. We know that there's a genetic component. For instance, when we screen patients for risk, of um, misusing opioids, 
a lot of the questions around family history of addiction and alcoholism. Um, we also know that just um, if you take the medications for fun, say if you're doing it as an experimental uh, to get high, if that's a that's a big risk factor for leading into addiction, even if you start started innocently. So if you if you have surgery and your doctor prescribes you a, a bottle of of opioids, what happens when you're done with that? Do you feel differently when you've stopped taking it? That's different in every situation. So we know that if you take it at lower doses for short periods of time, there's relatively um, minimal side effects to stopping the medications. For instance, a lot of the recommendations for after an acute injury or after a surgery is to take these medications for at the lowest dose possible for approximately three to seven days. And if you do that, you're usually able to stop it without having any kind of side effects. Your body hasn't changed enough, adapted to the medications enough to have significant withdrawal. However, if you're on high dose, moderate to high doses or for long periods of time, you're very likely to have challenges uh, stopping the medications without going through some withdrawal. Yeah, I was wondering about people with chronic pain. If they take it for a, a long period of time and then stop, what, are the, what, what, are their, what is their life like? What happens? Um, so stopping pain medications, if you've been on moderate to high doses for a long period of time, no matter what the situation, um, it's important to do so in a slow and controlled manner. If you do it abruptly, you're going to have severe withdrawal symptoms. Um, very, um, you get very uncomfortable. Any chronic pain you may have gets much worse. You have difficulty sleeping. Um, your mood changes. Um, your heart races. You sweat. You feel really uncomfortable. Um, and our goal, if we're ever going to stop medications, is to try to minimize those effects as much as possible. Um, and to do so, you, we kind of want to make slow changes to these medications over time. Is it true that higher doses of opioids equal more pain relief? Um, that's that in a true in a sense that's true. So, um, for instance, after a surgery um, or after an acute injury, if you take the medications, if you take a higher dose of the medications, you're going to have a better effect in terms of treating that pain. But you're also going to have more side effects. That's a different question when we talk about long-term use of medications. There's really no good information out there that, that tells us that higher doses of these medications, taking them long-term, actually helps pain more. In fact, there, there might be a trend towards higher doses of these medications being less effective for chronic pain when you take it long-term. Is there a, a point when somebody gets used to taking it and they just automatically start taking more because their body is requiring more, if you're, if you're an addicted sort of person? Yeah, and even if you're even if you're not don't have an addictive personality or you're not getting in um, into addiction issues, if you're taking this medication for legitimate reasons, you may find the effects of the medication become less and less over time. We call that tolerance in the medical field, and oftentimes to overpower that tolerance, um, patients will require higher doses of medications just to maintain the pain relief. And again, that comes back to your question about higher doses equaling more relief. It doesn't necessarily give you more relief escalating the doses at that point. You're just maintaining that same relief that you had at the lower doses previously because your body's getting used to the medications. There's probably a point with somebody that has chronic pain that they maybe think, oh, I should start reducing this and try to get off this. And then their pain comes back, so they go back to a, a, a higher dose. Is it kind yes. of a vicious circle a little bit? Yeah. So, um, for instance, somebody that might... Um, hear something from a family member or see something in the news and makes them feel guilty about their, their medication regimen the, that they're on. And they decide to throw their pills out the window or, or say, I'm just going to stop these. I don't, I don't like the stigma attached to them. Um, they will have challenges and they will go through withdrawal. And part of that withdrawal syndrome is increasing pain. 
And, and yeah, that can be a vicious cycle. And it could maybe reinforce to that patient that these medications were actually doing a lot more than what they actually were because of how terrible they felt when they stopped it. And so that strategy of just stopping right away is not a good one. If you do it in a controlled soul manner, the vast majority of the time, and this is supported um, by um, case reports and by animal and uh, human studies, if you, if you slowly decrease the medications to lower doses or completely come off of daily opioids for chronic, long-term non-cancer pain, the likelihood is that you have similar or even better pain relief. Super interesting. Yeah, wow, that's great. We're talking today with Dr. Rusty Kinder, and uh, a pain specialist at Adventist Health. And Adventist Health has been really successful in uh, decreasing opioid, opioid use. Why am I having sure. a hard time saying opioid? <laughs> how, how, is, how have you been doing that? So um, at Adventist Health, uh, we've been part of this kind of growing movement uh, in the United States over the last several years of um, kind of this addressing this, what they, they consider the opioid crisis, the so-called opioid crisis. Um, there's, uh, we've recognized that there's um, been overprescribing. Um, that they're, that we're recognizing addiction more and the fact that the overdose overdoses are going up. Um, we, in fact, saw that between 1992 and 2011, every single year there was an increase of prescribing year over year up until 2011, which was the peak. And that's when this whole tide started turning. And since that time, we've actually decreased opioid prescribing in the United States across the board by about 4% each year. And this most recent year being the biggest drop um, so far. And a lot of that's from efforts of um, regulatory boards across, across the country and better restrictions and better guidelines about, this, about these medications. Um, oh, um, Adventist kind of came, started really addressing this issue in 2015, 2016, when the American Medical Association started their opioid task force and then Oregon started a task force, and we started our own task force at, at Adventist. Groups of people getting together trying to um, use evidence-based medicine to provide the best care for patients and help um, guide, um, um, guide protocols for the rest of the providers. So, for instance, on our, our pain clinic, we, we meet at least once a month, and we talk about ways of developing protocols for um, intake, like how, what questions do you ask patients when they come in? How do we screen for them? How often should we see them? And we provide guidelines um, to our providers so that they have something to, to look at to, um, to have some, some guidance on how to best manage these patients. And just that acknowledgement and um, the helping them understand the risks of these medications and thinking about it more has had a dramatic um, effect on opioid prescribing. In just the last 12 months, we've had a 23% decrease um, in opioid prescribing in the Adventist, uh, Portland Adventist Health System. Wow, 23%. 23% decrease, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, so out, outpacing the national and state trends. That's great that it's kind of turning around. Do you, were doctors kind of over-prescribing in the past, or what was the, what was the reason? That's a complicated question, but the, the, there was a cultural change. In the 1990s, there was, um, there was a lot of pressure on physicians in the medical community in general to not under-treat chronic pain. And opioids were one of the um, thought to be one of the best uh, treatment options for chronic pain at that time. So if you were not treating a patient with chronic pain by prescribing opioids, you were thought to not be providing appropriate care. Mm. So that was a cultural thing, and part partly the government had um, um, 
was a part of that issue as well as the drug companies um, that that had lobbyists that were that were pushing for these medications. So it, it took some regulatory changes to kind of separate those things out and really start looking at some of these bigger um, studies on chronic pain and opioids and realizing that, that these are not necessarily the best treatment for um, for chronic pain. And you couple that with the fact that we have um, this this overdose uh, crisis uh, with opioids, the, um, looking at all the risks and the fact that the, the benefits don't seem to be as, as good as they were, uh, as we thought they were in the 90s, all that's kind of changed our culture um, about how we think about these medications. Starting in the 90s, did we all of a sudden have more chronic pain? Or what, what happened? Why, were, why, did, why was it in the 90s that, that this came about? I'm... I'm I think it comes down to um, what I mentioned about um, pressure on physicians, and that came from um, societies, um, medical societies, and it also came from um, the drug companies. Um, there was a push to try to treat pain. It's a good thing that we're focusing on chronic pain. I think for many, many years, it wasn't even a medical specialty mm-hmm. until maybe the, the 70s when it started getting recognized as, hey, this is actually something that really affects people's quality of life. We should actually think and care about this. Yeah, it's right. not heart yeah. disease and it's not liver disease or lung disease. It's not going to necessarily um, directly kill you, but um, it's still uh, a fact. It's a, it's a matter of quality of life and being able to function and be happy. Right. And those things also have secondary effects on your, on your longevity. Um, so it's been recognized. And I think the fact that we're focusing on, on pain and for a while, for instance, when I was in medical school, we called it the fifth vital sign. Pain was a fifth vital oh, sign. Wow, okay. You know, you got all your other things, blood pressure and heart rate and all that, and then you and then you throw in pain. And the, the emphasis on that was let's think about it. People suffer and we need to, to limit suffering. So that's a good thing. Now it's a different question to talk about how what's the best way to to manage that. And our our thinking about the role of opioids in that scenario has changed quite a bit over the last twenty years. Did opioids just come about in the nineties? Are they a rel- is it a relatively new um, Pain no, relief medication? No, it's been, it's been around um, before we had uh, FDA and before we had uh, medications. Um, old ancient cultures would use uh, opium poppy to, to alleviate suffering. Um, and we, we derived the first opioids from, from the opioid poppy. And then since then um, created synthetic uh, medications that have similar or, or different kinds of effects but uh, stimulate the same kind of receptor. But nature, did, nature gave us this medication. Yeah, yeah it's comes, it comes from the poppy plant, right. right? Okay. That's right. So what are some alternative treatments to pain then? If, if we're trying to not use opioids as much, what are our next alternatives? So there are a whole host of alternatives, but I, I try to look at them um, not as just a list of things that you can try. I, I try to think about it as we need to develop a, a comprehensive strategy um, to manage the pain. Um, and opioids sometimes have a role for that in that, but it's a, we, we like to think that that's a, a minor role as opposed to the major role for it. So we're trying to use any other modalities that we can to help patients. And that includes other medications. Um, there's um, some anticonvulsant medications, some antidepressant medications, muscle relaxants, um, anti-inflammatories, tyl- Tylenol, and a whole host of alternative um, herbal supplements and things that people use uh, for pain. Um, we also look at um, non-pharmacological, non-drug therapies like uh, physical therapy um, and uh, mind, mindfulness and 
Um, and then in my, in my field, we kind of focus on the um, kind of the, what we call the interventional therapy. That's the in, injection, spinal injections, nerve blocks that can help out with both the diagnosis of the chronic pain issue, but also um, help, help manage the pain long-term. I'm assuming there are probably instances where medication is maybe the only alternative. Is that correct? Medication of some sort. I've never said medication of some sort is the only oh. is the only option. Um, I think there's always something else that that you can provide in addition to into in addition to medications to help with the patient. Whether that's just uh, helping with coping skills, whether that's um, increasing exercise and and diet changes. Um, and sometimes, like we mentioned, um, uh, different injections, therapies, uh, nerve blocks, nerve burning procedures, um, surgeries. If somebody's been taking an op- opioid for a long time for chronic pain and they feel like they want to stop because it's affecting their other life, how do they? What do you recommend for them? I recommend if if you decide that you're trying to um, change your strategy for managing your pain, um, including uh, changes to, to your opioid therapy, I, I, I recommend that you work closely with your doctor or a clinician. Um, perhaps if you're, you've been managing, getting these medications managed from a primary care provider, um, it might be a good idea to have a consultation with a, a pain specialist like myself to kind of talk about strategies that can help with that. Um, and that way it takes some of the burden off trying to figure it out all on your own, and it, and it provides a safe um, for, format to slowly decrease the medications to get to, to get to your goal and also be able to work with different alternative therapies while you're making those changes to the medications. Like you say, the withdrawals can be pretty awful, I'm assuming. Absolutely. So they should come and talk to you. Do you see patients? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. How have, uh, how have the, how's that changed in the last few years? Do you, are you seeing more patients because of, of pain medications? I think there there is more um, there's more transition of chronic pain patients that are taking daily opioids long term away from primary care providers to pain specialists. So there's been a big movement there. So I think our field in general is growing, and we're seeing more, more and more, and managing more and more patients. Okay. Over time, and part of that's the, this recognition of the opioid crisis, but part of it's regulatory. There's a lot of fear in the medical field about. Um, not doing things the right way and uh, getting in trouble, losing your medical license. Um, and I've seen that, I've seen some clinics basically stop seeing any chronic pain patients. And if you call their clinic to be established as a primary care provider and you chronic pains on your, on your problem list, they'll, they'll tell you they're not going to accept you because of that. Wow. That's, yeah. that's kind of shocking actually. It, it, yeah, it is. It's unfortunate. So we have about a minute or so. Tell me about what you see in the future of pain management. So the future of pain management um, is is a, a broad horizon. We got so many different uh, technologies on the way. For instance, one of the one of the main things that I use for uh, pain management, one of my favorite modalities to use, is something called spinal cord stimulator. For people that maybe have had back surgeries or multiple back surgeries, continue to have nerve pain um, in their extremities, um, very common. Um, spinal cord stimulator is a technology that helps change those pain signals so the patient can live quali- have quality of life, um, be able to f- function, spend time with their grandkids. Um, that, that technology, just that technology, has grown leaps and bounds over the last 10 years in terms of our understanding of 
different um, algorithms for electricity to to stop that pain and understanding with we use functional MRI to kind of see how the body reacts to this kind of technology and it has effects in the brain that are really interesting and so the the research in that area I think has a potential to continue to keep growing and then that modality is um, I think it's 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 going to keep growing and it's going to have more and more applications as we go forward. The FDA just last week approved a new um, stimulator device for peripheral nerves that can be implanted um, on nerves like in the arm and the abdomen and different parts of the body other than the spine um, where you have a wearable device that you put over it to, to send the electricity to it. So it's wow. a very small implant and all the electricity and all the um, sophisticated computer technology is outside of the body. So it's, it's really... Um, that it's, I see that as kind of a wave of the future in, in my field, at least in, in terms of treating pain. Thank goodness for scientists and research, right? Right. <laughs> Keep <Yeah>. going. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been great information today. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. We've been talking today with Dr. Rusty Kinder, a fellowship-trained interventional pain specialist at Adventist Health. Metroscope is an Intercom Radio Portland public affairs program. I'm Gary Bloxham. If you're involved with a nonprofit or public affairs organization, or if you have an idea for an upcoming show, I'd like to hear from you. Visit MetroscopePDX.com and submit your ideas. You can also go to this station's website and submit your information there. Thanks for listening to Metroscope and enjoy the rest of your weekend. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 